It's Wednesday, April 5th, 2022, and you're listening to episode 594 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 41 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Caleb. This is Wayne. I'm Brodor. All right, so real quick, fearthecon.com, sign up still going on. Yep. June 16th for the Social Mixer mm-hmm. and the Mikey Mason performance. Great comedy show. You're not going to want to miss that. If you haven't seen his stuff, you can find some of it just by looking up Mikey Mason on YouTube. He's also got a Bandcamp account. I'll link to some of that stuff if you want to see what you're in for. But in addition to his music, he also just does a lot of audience interaction and BSing around and more, I guess, talk prosaic comedy i don't know what to call it that you won't necessarily get from that stuff and then of course two days the 17th and 18th which is a friday and a saturday where we will be doing two days six slots of gaming and it's going to be a ton of fun and if you've got a family member or a friend or somebody who's not a role player that wants to come to the con i do believe there's going to be some other stuff going on like board game activities And I also do intend in first slot to bring back something I did at the prior Fear of the Con that we had in person, which is an intro to RPG game that is meant for people who have never played a game before. They don't know what a D8 is. This is all foreign to them. We're going to walk them through their first game, teach them all the basic concepts. I haven't settled on a game but I'm thinking it's going to be another house pet mayhem sort of game to make it a nice approachable concept that everyone can buy into. So don't hesitate to bring somebody that's in that situation. And this is a reminder for everyone. We funded this con back in 2019. So there is no fee at the door. Yeah, that's correct. If you want to bring somebody, bring them. They don't have to pay anything to get in. Exactly. Yeah. You got to pay your cost of living. In terms of, you know, in the hotel room, your food, getting down there. But in terms of just walking into the event, participating in the games, there is not a dime we're charging you. This is already paid for. Fearthecon.com. Hope to see you guys in a couple of months. All right. So this show, we're going to pick up the opposite side of a topic we discussed last show. I'm going to re-explain the idea very quickly, and we're going to get straight to it. We were talking about horizontal creativity versus vertical creativity. And the way I'm defining those terms is actually based on a concept in computing, but you can find this in other places. Horizontal means to add more. So if you have a computing thing where you've got a lot of data to process, you attach six computers to chewing on the same problem so they get it done faster. The example Wayne used was lifting a weight. You can get six weak people to lift the weight if one can't do it on their own, as opposed to a vertical, which in computing would be adding more RAM, more processor to one computer, not adding more computers. Or in Wayne's example, lifting a weight, this would be going out and getting a professional wrestler wrestler to lift the fridge for you instead of getting half a dozen of your scrawny buddies or whatever. So... How we're applying this to gaming is specifically within the context of character design. Vertical creativity, which we talked about last episode, is defining your character more deeply 
within relatively strict confines. Everyone in the party is a human knight. You may not be anything but a human knight. Now distinguish yourself within that. In this episode, we are going to talk about the virtues of the opposite form, which is horizontal creativity, where you get creative with your character by making them something unusual. So instead of having half a dozen human knights and really getting down into the personality, maybe you have one human knight and then you have a tiefling wizard and then you have a tabaxi rogue and then you have a this and a that and everybody brings in their weird splat races and classes and subclasses and class features and you get your diversity and creativity that way. And I think the place that I want to start is while horizontal creativity tends to be a lazy way to get around vertical creativity, meaning if someone's playing a funky race, funky class combination, they oftentimes tend to stop and just say, well, I'm the stereotypical dwarf. I have a Scottish accent. I drink too much alcohol. I hate horses. We make jokes about our women having beards, blah, blah, blah. And they just run right down that, and that's their character. They don't think real deeply about who this character is because the superficial traits are sufficient stand-ins for deeper traits or essential traits. But the fact that people get lazy and do that doesn't mean they have to. You can play this weird splat race splat class that nobody's ever heard of before and still give them a deep, intriguing, interesting personality, background, way of looking at the world that is independent of what they are. That who they are can still be interesting even if what they are is somewhat novel. I'm going to drop a hot take here. We've said that going the variety way is the lazy way for the players. Well, I think requiring everyone to be the same thing is a lazy way for the GM. It's a way for you to not have to deal with the creativity that is brought to you by your players being a variety of different things and what they're bringing to the table. You don't have to worry about when this group comes in, what does the bartender think of Tabaxi? What does the bartender think of this? They're all humans. Okay, you only have to think of what does the bartender think of human paladins? It also changes the way that you approach encounter design or problem design or situation design or scene design. Yeah, If I'm a GM and running a game where I've given them this narrow focus limit, that means the story I'm telling is a narrow focus story. Versus if I am a GM and I am the type that usually lets people bring in whatever they want and then I'll negotiate if it's something I don't think I can handle. But I want the players to say, okay, I've got two players that want to beat Tabaxi. I did not have Tabaxi in my world. Now they have challenged me by bringing Tabaxi. I am now creating the Tabaxi culture. And that is now a subplot in the game that would not have been in my game if they hadn't brought it. Sure. And I appreciate that challenge as a GM. Yeah. Let me give you two examples here in the positive. One was I was running a Star Trek game, and last episode we talked about somebody who wanted to play a Q. In this one, I'm going to talk about somebody who actually did play a Betazoid. And something that I had to account for in setting up the problems they were dealing with is here's somebody who has at least a modest ability to read minds and to affect minds. They can both 
hear thoughts and also implant thoughts to some degree. And the game does have rules for that and dice rolls and all this kind of stuff. So I didn't have to write that part, but I did still have to think about tricorders and science and phasers are not the only way they can solve problems now. Yeah, you have a whole other section of the rule book that you could have ignored if you said, no Betazoids in my game. Yeah. But now you have to look at that section of the rule book too. Yeah, and, and this is a non-spoiler, so if you're not up on the show, don't fret about it. But I am so happy that in Picard Season 2, they have finally brought back the race that was supposed to be the Betazoids, that the Betazoids were actually created to replace. They bring back the Daltons mm. for the first time in, since as far as I know, I don't think they've been mentioned at all in the Star Trek universe and Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. I'm way out of my depth yeah. when it comes to the Star <laughs> but, Trek. But they were a, yeah. they were a, they were a relatively sexual and psionic species Hot. that of course was named after a Greek letter, the Deltons. And when they flipped over doing the next generation, instead of Star Trek phase two, they dropped the Deltons and recreated them as the Betazoids. And I'm so happy they finally brought back the original Deltons, but side thing. But another positive example I'm going to use is actually arguing against something I was bashing last episode. We were talking about our next AP being a homebrew sci-fi setting. And one person said they wanted to be the ship's AI. And it's like, damn it, that is completely outside of the realm what everyone else would be playing. You're a one-off scenario that is going to require special accommodation and all these ways that nobody else's character is going to require. But when he pitched that to me, since we weren't actually starting the game right then, I didn't accept or shoot down the idea. I just acknowledged I'd heard it and started contemplating it. And in the weeks and months since that conversation, I have begun expanding my setting. Because I started thinking about, well, how would I handle and integrate artificial intelligences into this far future setting where if there's one, there's likely to be many, possibly huge quantities of them, trillions of them. How do I start to give them some kind of meaningful society and some kind of culture? And how does biological life view them and how do they view biological life? And how do I do this without creating an unnecessary bifurcation or division in the game? Like what you see with the Shadowrun Decker, where when they deck in, they're playing their own sub game. You know, how do I give them an AI world, an AI internet or whatever, except keep it close enough to the real world that it's not two separate games or two separate settings? And I had to invent a lot of ideas and expand my own concepts for this universe in order to think through all these eventualities. In that setting, I've played, I think, two campaigns that you ran in Epoch of Rysos. And in both of them, I was an alien. In the first one, everyone was human except for me. I was an Asta. Yeah. And part of the reason I did that was... I wanted something different. I wanted something unique. And it was more interesting to me to be an alien in that setting. But that also allowed me being the only alien. That became part of that character. That that character is the only alien on the ship. Why is that character the only alien on the ship? Yeah. And that made me think about who this character was, what they were interested in. He was an Asta 
has to have to decide between two aspects of themselves. Are they more the alien, more the human? Because they are a genetically created race. My Asta was an Asta that wanted to be human. He was essentially like Data. I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but that became something that was part of the character because the character was something different. Yeah. And the, the second time I just did it because we were playtesting and nobody had done the psionics in game. Yeah. And I wanna, so I did that to help Dan as a playtest. Yeah. Let, let, I want to loop back to that second thought in a minute because I want to expound on your first thought there that it did create a unique set of circumstances within the story because of the fact that you were the one alien that was in there. And so we had to start thinking about plot lines and character development and things like that that would not have been possible if you had been yet another human. Even if your character is wonderfully deep, right? We've got all the vertical depth we could possibly ask for. But if you're still human, that one issue cannot be explored within the character. Yeah, and it was very specifically was not just playing a human with makeup because then what's the point of being an alien if you're just another human? One of the things that I like about that is that not only do you have your unique character that's you and you have to think about how you interact with everything, all the other players have to figure out how to interact with the other, whether it's race or or style or, or thing. You have something unique to play with. Yes, personalities can be really, really important, um, but sometimes it's useful to have somebody who has a different, obviously a different skill set, different background, it's vastly different than yours. So you're getting to explore that idea of, you know, essentially of things like race and, and diversity and, and those kind of questions come up more in a, when you have these unique characters on occasion now, or if you're all unique characters, now you've got a lot of places you can explore can get a little too messy sometimes if you're not too careful, if you get too unique. But if you're trying to spread out and create diversity, you have to have those uniquenesses between the characters. And there is something to be said for the story of five unique characters that have come together and they are bonding over the fact that they are other. They are family because everyone else looks at them negatively. Yeah, in that same setting, this was for a different group of people some years back, but in that same setting, I had a group where each of them was a different species from the universe. What their setup was, and the story they came with, is a really neat backstory for the group template. There is a little cluster within this universe that is run by a particular race. It's actually kind of a client race of a more powerful species and they try to use it as a sort of switzerland we want there to be a place where people can come together neutral territory exchange culture exchange ideas get to know each other talk things out peacefully blah 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 and what they went for was we are all the children of diplomats that are present on this planet And we all went to the same basic educational academies. And we all have our unique cultural and racial heritages. But we all became friends because we went to the same schools and played on the same playgrounds. And it was this combination of races or literal species that you would not normally see. But that is a combination to me of the two concepts, right? Because you get your horizontal 
design in terms of we all get to be different and unique, but you still get vertical design by saying, however, your parents are all diplomats. You're all here in this place. You all went to similar schools and travel in similar circles. And so essentially, in my mind, you're taking both concepts. The best and, of both worlds. Yeah, and, and merging right. them, right? Doing an amalgamation. Yeah, I always ask when a GM is limiting something, why are they limiting it? Because it's stupid. No, there's a lot <laughs> of different a dumb rule because monks are dumb. There are a lot of different <laughs> reasons why a GM could be limiting it. And one of them could be along like you were hitting on. Maybe there's a certain rule set in the book that as a GM, I don't want to deal with psionics. Or I don't know how to. I, I, was, I don't know how to. I was going to. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to. Yeah. Caleb's saying, oh, sometimes it's I don't know. So you want to play something I've never heard of from some bit of unearthed arcana or whatever splat book or expansion book that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, the and easy I just answer, don't know the rules. Yeah, the easy answer is just say no. The more difficult answer is look it up, find out if it's going to work, and make them run their rules. Well, and I think that's uh, that's really an important distinction is that as a game master, if you are saying that I don't like this thing and I don't want to incorporate it into the game, for me, with my players at zero session, it's really important that we talk about why I don't like that thing, whether it is thematically it doesn't fit the world or mechanically I find it challenging or oh, we're playing first edition Pathfinder and you want to play a summoner, the answer is no. And we all know because it's stupid, broken, unfun, broken, (laughs) no. Yeah, I tend to be the kind of GM where I may lay out, here's what I'd like for everyone, but I'm open for someone to come to me with their idea. Because sometimes when somebody is pitching a game, I'll be sitting there listening to the pitch and I'll get a character idea in my mind. And I am suddenly excited about this character and I want to play this character And maybe then after that, I find out there's a limit that would keep me from playing it. And it's not that I want to be different. It's that I'm now excited about an idea. I have passion. If this idea gets killed, then I'm not going to be as excited about whatever else I play. So then that's when, as a GM, I want to talk to that person and negotiate. What is interesting about that idea? What can we give you that you're still excited about this character, but also doesn't break me as a GM what I'm wanting to run? See, and that's what I was thinking about when you said that this way is the other way. Vertical is the sort of the lazy GM's way of going about it. Did I totally concede that initially it is easier to start a game if there are absolute confines? But I also find that when I just let the players do whatever it is that they want, I find that it is much more challenging for me as the game master because I have to pursue all of these little niches and because people have been given the opportunity to do whatever it is the heck that they want, sometimes there isn't a lot of depth there for me to explore. and Yeah, and that's where you as the GM need to put it back on the player. Okay, you want to play this cool, unique character. A, how does it fit in this world that I've got? I pitched this world. Well, that's your responsibility, well, Caleb. Yeah, you're the game master. But I'm you not... can pull that out. You can pull that out of your players a little bit. Yeah. Get get the feedback. You got. How do you fit in? What is your unique thing? How is it going to help this campaign? Because when you're playing, we're playing this all collaboratively in the long run. I'm running the GM, but it's your game. Your four players. Five, that's how I always see it. It's the five players that are sitting in front of me, or four players, or whatever. It's their game. Like, they're the ones I want to explore their story. I may have a story to tell, too, 
But a lot of it's about how do I draw that out of the players? Because I want to see them become part of their character and interact with each other. If I could sit back for 75% of the session and I'm just letting them go, I've won. Yeah. yeah. What I love, what a dad's phrase is that I love is the, uh, okay, I'm not going to say no, but I need you to sell me on it. It's going to be a tough sell. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, and that's because when he says that he legitimately means sell me on it because I have seen him say that. And then the player tells him why they're interested and he goes with it. Right. He doesn't just say that to, Make them feel like, oh, yeah, go ahead, sell me on it. Well, we'll talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and right. I, this was something that I'm glad you guys are talking about because this is one of the points I wanted to bring up that you guys are describing. If we look at vertical creativity as being a way to get the players to stop being lazy, I think it is equally true that a horizontal creativity is a way to get the GM to kind of get up and work a bit. But having said that, I think the further off the ranch the player wants to go, they do need to take some ownership to make their idea okay. And I have three rules here for how do they need to make it okay. One is learn it, meaning know what it is you're playing. Do not expect the GM, because they have a lot of other stuff to do and keep track of, to know all the details of your class, all the abilities of your class, all the culture of your class. In fact, you may even have to not just know it, but you may have to tell the GM, hey, this is the way my particular species tends to organize. And so I've probably got a tribal family thing over here, just an FYI. The second thing... Or you're a monk. I don't know what key points do. You need to learn that yourself and manage it. Or return to the GM with a Cliff Notes version. You know, here's some basic hit points of these are the top five things you need to know about monk. Yeah, exactly. Or the cultural whatever. So the second thing is give it depth. You've got to take some responsibility for saying, okay, I'm this and that, but here's what I'm going to do to keep it from just being a new shiny. Here's how I'm going to actually make it a compelling character beyond the top three lines on the character sheet of I go back to my Asta that I was describing. One of the things I talked to Dan, I'd like a pet at some point. I had certain things that he was studying that had nothing to do with the fact that he was the only alien on board the ship. He had interests as a person, as a character Mm -hmm. outside of being an alien. It wasn't a crutch of just falling back on being the lone alien that informed who he was, but it wasn't the only thing he was. And the third thing I would say is be prepared to limit it. And what I mean by that is you need to be able to recognize, look, these are the ways in which the mere presence of what I am doesn't fit into the setting. These are the powers I have that might be game-breaking. I'm not going to wait for the GM to have their game broken and the table in an argument. I am going to leash myself a little bit and say, okay, I could do this. Nobody at the table but me even knows this is possible, and technically the rules allow it. But I'm not going to do it. I'll just tell the GM, hey, FYI, I can do this, this, and this, which would totally end this encounter. I'm not going to do it, but just note for the future that I could have. Well, and from a setting standpoint, let's say you're running a Star Wars game in the era after the Empire has taken over, but before the original trilogy. Jedi are being hunted down. Someone wants to play a Jedi, then they have to acknowledge that if they pull out a lightsaber or they use the Force... 
Now the entire party is going to deal with Jedi hunters after them. Yeah. Yeah. If but, they aren't already dealing with it before. Right. Because the force is felt. So that's. <laughs> and that's the, that's the thing. If you're playing something really out there, you need to be creative yourself to figure out why it's not really that out there. What you're going to do to keep it from harming everyone else at the table. Because it's going to if you're something weird enough. Yeah, maybe it is my damage. And I know that this is a little tangential, but if a player comes to me, and I, I've not had this experience for a very long time, but if a player comes to me and says, I want to be X, and X is significantly more powerful mechanically than everybody else at the table. Um, and I'm never going to access that power. I'm never going to utilize it. I'm immediately extremely suspicious about how this person's going to fuck up my game because I have not played in a situation where a player has had access to that kind of stuff. And it has been fun for anyone at the table except for that person, including the game master. Yeah. Like, I can just imagine being that player because I know what I would want out of it. Yeah, but you're not an asshole, right? And, <laughs> and you strike me as fairly mature. You're not like most of us. Yeah, but I get And as a GM, I once did have to tell a player that the character they wanted to play wasn't going to work. And my issue with it was the character that they wanted to play was not going to be able to interact with NPCs or other player characters very often. And... It's not that I couldn't have been creative and tried to find a way around it, but it wasn't going to be fun for the player. And the player thought that it was going to be fun for them. And I needed to make sure they understood really that if I said yes to this, your game is going to be miserable for you because you're going to be quiet and hidden most of the time and not get to interact with anyone. For example, if you've got a character who is uh, contrary to the the world area that you're in, say, for example, you're a tiefling in a D&D campaign in a normal human society tieflings are hated generally so that's going to cause controversy so not only do you have to have the buy-in from the the gm but i think you should also have the buy-in from the other players you should be able to sell your idea to the other players and if they are willing to find a reason to back that character and they have a buy-in to the protecting that character or keeping that character afloat without it causing major issues then i think that's okay yeah and i will give i'll give an example of that the gnarl game we had just had a war with the Knolls. Gnarl, a Knoll walking into a city was generally going to be looked at with fear by the people there. Mm-hmm. We, as the other players, knew that going in, and we were perfectly fine with it. And Dan found ways playing that character yeah. to make people comfortable with it. I played him as a character that admired human culture and organization that was oftentimes intentionally... I wouldn't say submissive. I, I think that's too strong of a word, but was very dialed back and in interacting with people. It was not always trying to throw his weight around, throw his strength around, be a nuisance, be an intimidating presence. He bathed. He had his fur combed out. You know, there were things that he did to try and fit in. I limited myself that this character had a lot of ability that I had my own leash on. And I'm actually doing something similar in the West Marches game right now. And I GM a lot, so I don't get a chance to explore my character as much as I like. But I actually am playing a tiefling. And I am playing it such that her lineage, several generations back, is from a succubus. 
And so she has a big racial bonus to charisma, and she has a superhuman charisma. She has a charisma score that the 5e rules do not allow a human to obtain. The way that I have reined that in is she is so profoundly ashamed of the fact that she is part demonic or devil, or I forget which succubus are. I don't remember whether devils or demons. They're, they're demons. Uh, but she is... they're chaotic. That's what I thought. Yeah. But she is so bothered by that, and she recognizes the fact that this unnatural, unearthly beauty is a profound distraction from people's otherwise honest reactions to her, that she has opted to wear these floor-dragging, body-hiding burlap like monk's robes with a hood constantly up you barely see anything of her i mean you see her hands and some of her face and that's about it because she doesn't want that to be what she leads off with she doesn't want that to be how people interact with her she wants to be interacted with in a deeper way and so she actually intentionally hides it and despite having the best charisma modifier of anyone in the party she steps back and lets the bards and the rogue do all of the actual charisma checks, the deception checks and the persuasion checks and all that kind of stuff. You know, I intentionally play down that aspect. Right. Now, see, that's different and interesting, right? The, right. The, I guess the challenge is, and I don't know, it seems like all advice can be boiled down into good communication and not being an <laughs> I guess when don't be you're, a dick. when you're what's that? Don't be a dick. Yeah, don't be that's, a dick. That's what but, says. But when building a party like that, right? I think that that is an interesting role playing perspective because how many people at the table even have any idea how strong your charisma is and that how much better you may be at some of those persuasion and diplomacy skills? But that's immaterial compared to the fact that you as the player want to step back and explore that thing yeah that's interesting yeah but i don't i don't i don't know that the, the the fact that she's part demon is more important to her than what being that part demon would give her i and i, I actually know where i came up with a character concept was toying around with an inverse of darth talon now for anyone's not familiar with darth talon she was a Sith that was in the expanded universe. They, Star Wars Legacy. Yeah, they were thinking about reintroducing her in the original plans of episodes 7, 8, and 9, but they chose not to. But part of her thing is... They could not find a human actor attractive enough for my spank bank. Is yeah, did, yeah she, is, she is superhuman hot. Yeah. And, of course, with the Sith desire is part of that whole path of the dark side and she's a twilight right yeah she's a twilight and so mm-hmm. it is in her nature that her beauty that's part of her arsenal you know that to be able to distract to seduce to whatever that is part of her arsenal that's a weapon to her always to these hideous ends but nonetheless that is a weapon to her and i want to play a character that kind of flipped that idea on its head it's but, funny i was actually kind of wondering if you were basing her off of miranda from mass effect no, because I think Miranda, she rode sort of the middle road. If She's like, I'm not trying to lead off with it, but I'm also not trying to hide it. Right. Because she's like, I don't want to be arrogant, but I also refuse to have a false modesty. You know, I am the perfect image of beauty, and it's 
foolish to pretend otherwise. And so I think she's kind of a midpoint between my tiefling and say Darth Talon. And so I went to a different extreme with that. And I don't want to make this show about my tiefling. So Wayne, I want to bounce back to something else you were talking about where we talked about, you know, how introducing ideas from horizontal creativity can expand your knowledge of the rules. That is one of the positive things that it can do. That's a positive effect that it may be uncomfortable to the GM at first to not know the rules, but you are over time, if you're doing this right, not abusing it, educating the GM in a part of the game they were not previously familiar with or Wayne, in the case of your second Asta, the one that favored the alien side and actually had some limited psionic abilities you were helping me play test rules, right? Because I had never had a chance to play test those psionic rules, and so it gave me a chance to see how does this fit into the setting, how does it balance with the other races and species, and it also allowed me to explore a cultural side of that race because the more they favor the alien side, the current prevailing culture within that race is they actually, even though they are arguably more intelligent, more powerful, et cetera, et cetera, the species pities them. They see them as carrying really the worst insidious aspects of their heritage. And so it allowed me to test and to explore rules and setting that I wasn't per se learning, but I was testing, I was learning about in terms of how these things interact with real world situations. Well, as real world as a game gets, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And that was kind of the whole point of that character was Dan has said, we've never, I've never had one of these since he's redone the mm-hmm. rules. It's like, okay, well I'll, I'll do that. And then I had to come up with, okay, well now what is the character behind this? But that was one of those cases of, okay, I knew what I was going to play based on I'm doing this for the play test. Now I need to figure out who that character is. And sometimes that happens in systems. There are some times where I look at a rule book, and I see a class or a set of rules. It's like, that is mechanically awesome. I want to explore it. Now I need to figure out a character that fits with that. And that can be the case, too, when it comes to, let's say, you've, you've asked everyone to be a party of paladins. Well, now you're only dealing with paladin abilities. Isn't combat more interesting if you have a variety of things going on and you start synergizing between the two? Well, and I think that's another point that I had not considered when we were recording part one is that it really, as Dan was just talking about the the rules and you you were alluding to as well, the rules exploration of the thing. When it comes to D and D, well, there are a ton of rules, yet there are only so many combinations of things that I want to do. So part of doing something fun and interesting and different is trying a combination of mechanics that I have not played before. And so I think for a game that has a lot of mechanics or, you know, D20, 2D20. Let's say my last three characters have been a human paladin and then you come and pitch the idea of, okay, we're now a party of human paladins. I might come to you and say, can I be a priest of yeah, the same guy? Yeah, no. absolutely. Can I have different mechanics? I can. You can call me a paladin, but can I please have different mechanics? Right, yeah. and and I can. I totally, totally can get on board with that. And certainly, me when pitching a game, I would absolutely take into consideration 
what we have done. And even though we don't play in the same groups all the time, of course I would want to talk to you. But for me, as someone writing a game, I find it much easier to pick a concept and say, I want to play in this idea and this this sort of narrow focus and I want to explore from there versus I want to play a fantasy game and here are all the books that you can do because it just becomes so big and I don't know I find that for me as a storyteller it becomes more about the surface than the depth Mm. when we do horizontal versus vertical yeah Well, and I want to close out on this, which is I think you've also got to look at your situation in terms of who you're playing with, because sometimes just allowing people to have a little bit of lowbrow fun by being something weird isn't all that bad, especially if you're talking about a game where you don't have time to develop that vertical depth. So you're talking about a one shot, a con game, or you know what? I'm going to give the example of a game with a lot of new players. In the West Marches game that I'm running, there are a lot of people playing in that game where this is either one of their first RPGs or it is their very first RPG. And they came to me with a lot of stuff like one of my nephews wanted to play a Yuan-T Abomination. And his only reason for it is he's a fan of snakes. Okay, I wiggled out some race rules that kind of balance them in with the other races in D&D and I just let it roll. There's no reason whatsoever. There's no in-story sense to a UNT abomination hanging out with a group of regular good-aligned adventurers. <laughs> but you know what? He's having fun with it. It gave him buy-in to the game because he's young enough in his career as a role player. I don't know that he knows how to develop depth. I think he's getting there. Right. But setting out, he didn't. Similarly, there... It was another person, a young lady who's playing with us, where she really likes mermaids and things like that. So I'm letting her play a sea elf. There should not be any sea elves in this area. It it makes no sense to the setting. I kind of had to fiddle out some rules for them. I actually ended up basing them heavily on a mashup of elven racial traits and aquan or triton or whatever they're called. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think triton, whatever. I can't remember, but. They're in Volos, uh, whatever that race name is. I just kind of found a midpoint between their racial stats. And I'm like, boom, there you go. There's a sea elf. And you know what? It's not a crime. I think it can be lazy, but it doesn't have yeah. to be lazy. And I even when it, it is, it's not a crime. So I think it can generate creativity, too. It can force the person to figure out why. Yeah. Why is this character here? When they're not normally here. Well, and that gave me some new stories. For example, in the case of the sea elf, I said, okay, there aren't seals in the setting. Why aren't there seals in the setting? Well, because their empire went into decline and they have mostly been wiped out. And if there are any left in the world, you have no idea where they are. You don't know where your family is. And now all of a sudden, that's a whole (laughs) new quest chain of trying to find artifacts of this ancient empire and see where did they go? What happened to them? Are there any of them left? Mm-hmm. Or is she the last of her kind? And it's, Oh, no, they've been eaten by the Sahagan to extinction. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, no, they've definitely been through some dark stuff. And I still haven't reached <laughs> the end of that story. And I could tell you a story about how I'm actually tying a wraith into it because she got pulled into a what's called a gase, 
which is a mm-hmm. magical pact mm-hmm. with a wraith, where the wraith claims to be the undead spirit of a sea elf king. Maybe is, maybe isn't. But the pact is she has to keep the wraith around. She's not allowed to let anyone kill or turn it. And in return, he has to help her find clues to her lost people. Nice. Mm. And so I, I could tell you the whole story there, but I don't want to drag this episode on. So all I want to say is, once again, there is an upside and a downside to all of it. Cook your games to taste. Other than that, check the show notes, link to Fear of the Con. And thank you guys for tuning in, and we will catch you next time. See ya. This has been a production of Fear the Booth, copyright 2022. Listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor, so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. If you wish to support this show and its related endeavors, you can do so at patreon.com slash feartheboot.